Well, welcome to Sedaris. Thank you, Benjamin, for those holiday classics. <laughs> um, they bring me back to a time, a better time, a better time, a better place. So, um, thank you for being here the last Sunday of Advent as we prepare for the arrival of Jesus. That's what Advent means, arrival. So we've been talking about these arrival terms that we hear a lot around Christmas time. First week we talked about hope, and we've tried to clarify what is that hope uh, that Jesus brings with him when he comes. And last week we talked about peace. And what is really the peace that Jesus brings? Is it the peace that we so often talk about at Christmas time? Is it just this good old holiday cheer? And tonight we're going to be looking at another word, try to clarify that word. The word is joy. And in the same way, oftentimes we talk about joy, but what is it and how does Jesus bring it? So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter 16? If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat back in front of you or on the end of the row. You can also Google John 16, and we are going to look at a few words that Jesus has for his disciples, therefore he has them for us as well. John chapter 16, would you read along with me? We're going to start in verse 16. The word of God says this. Jesus said, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this? That he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they were wanting to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Would you pray with me as we ask God to... Open this word to us. Father, thank you for this chance to get together in fellowship and come before you and worship and sing praise to you uh, to anticipate together uh, the coming of Jesus, to celebrate his first coming and look forward to his second coming and, and, and to study your word and to consider the truth of the gospel and how it impacts and penetrates our lives. I just pray that you'd be with each of us tonight, myself included, that, that the text... Uh, would open up to us, that we might uh, 
have ears to hear and eyes to see that which you are showing us and revealing to us tonight, and that we might learn of this joy that you want us to have in full. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So here's what I want to focus on, this very last statement by Jesus, that your joy may be full. So it's obviously important to Jesus that we experience joy. He wants our joy, and he doesn't want it just in part. He wants it in full. Now, what's interesting, and scholars will debate, what is this, I'm going away and I'm coming back? Is he talking about, um, this is obviously before he's gone to the cross and he's died, uh, and before he's resurrected from the grave, and so is he talking about, I must go away, which is I must die, and then I'll come back in a little while, which is three days, and you'll see me again? Or is he talking about, I will go away during the ascension after his resurrection, and I'm coming back? Now, obviously, both things are true. He goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried in the grave, and he rises again. And then he ascends to heaven, and he goes to be with the Father, and he's coming back one day. So both are true, and, and in a sense, um, uh, Jesus might be promising both of these. Some scholars believe that. But probably he's more specifically talking about the first going and coming. So that he must go and die, be buried, and be risen again. And why it's um, important to bring this up now is, if you look in verse 22, he says this, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And if he's talking about the resurrection, and then your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So if he's talking about the resurrection, what he's saying then is that there is a type of joy that all those people that come after the resurrection can have, this full joy that they couldn't have even before the cross and the resurrection. This is important because we are people of the resurrection. So we too have access to the same joy that no one can take from us because we've come after Jesus has risen from the grave. And our joy can be full. And it seems to say that some shift has taken place because of the cross and the resurrection. So if we are like the disciples now post-resurrection and we have access to this joy, this full joy, and no one can take it from us, how are we doing with that? How are we doing? I want us to have joy. I want us to have the kind of joy Jesus is talking about here. And believe me, the circumstances that the disciples were about to walk into, the persecution, being imprisoned, being beaten, being stoned to death, being hung upside down on a cross, all the things that they were about to be exposed to, Jesus says, but they can't take your joy. That's the kind of joy I want us to have. Jesus wants us to find this kind of joy. One, because he loves us, and he wants us to be full of him and the joy that that brings. But there's another reason as well why we should seek to find this joy. 
our joy is a witness to the truth of who Jesus is. You see, most human beings, particularly in our age, are very pragmatic. And they're looking around and they're seeing, what's in it for me? Now, of course, if you've been walking with Jesus for some time, you realize the point of coming and worshiping him, uh, studying his word, praying, it's not just about what's in it for me. But to be honest, most people, and maybe, maybe you're in this uh, category, you come back to church or to church for the first time, you enter into the conversations about Jesus because you see that there might be something in it for you. And so if, as Christians, as a church, we lack joy, it's not just that we're missing out on this joy that Jesus wants for us, but it's that we're painting a picture of what life with Jesus is that's incorrect. And it's not very attractive, and people don't want to come and see what is this all about. And so for those two reasons, we want to find this joy. And I'm going to call it Christian joy, um, because there's a different kind of joy that I think is less than this Christian joy that Jesus promises. Now, a few things that we must say about this Christian joy to start with. It's not a Pollyanna type of joy. How many of you know where that term comes from, Pollyanna? Okay, just found this out this week. I knew what the term meant, but there's actually a, a grand uh, a book and movie about um, this young gal named Pollyanna, and she's just always so positive, and she's always got a smile on her face, and she only sees the bright side of everything, and everybody else in her life is just so darn dreary. And so she, <laughs> thanks, Sarah, yeah, Sarah's favorite movie, and um, so, she, so she, she just can't understand it, okay? And I just found that out. I, I knew the word, and Sarah told me, no, that's actually from a, a great old book and movie. And uh, so I watched a few clips, the, the magic of YouTube. This looks like a great movie. I think I'm going to go watch the whole thing. And uh, that's where we get this term Pollyanna. But we're not called to be Pollyannas. Here's what I mean by this. Having joy or, or witnessing the joy of Christ doesn't mean just slapping a smile on in every situation. God's not calling us to be naive optimists. He's calling us to have true Christian joy. And we've got to figure out what that is because it's not just smiling through everything, giggling your way through everything, refusing to see the reality of tough situations. That's not Christian joy. Now, the other thing that Christian joy is not, it's not high-pitched. Isn't it weird? At Christmas time, everything <laughs> raises up an octave. And for some reason, any other time of the year, you hear singing chipmunks, and it's going to drive you crazy. But at Christmas time, we're very excited about this, and we can't wait to turn that kind of music on. I don't understand it. That's not Christian joy. That's something else. Christian joy is deep. It's baritone. It's like, it's like. Barry Manilow, kind of, yeah, that's the kind of singing. That's the kind of Christmas music, music you should listen to. Because it's deep, it's full, it penetrates every level of our being. It doesn't sort of stay on the surface. And this is that idea of fullness that Jesus talks about. He wants our full joy. He wants it to saturate every part of us. He doesn't want us to just 
put on a mask. So we're looking for this kind of joy, this kind of happiness that is a couple of things. It's unconditional, meaning it's not determined by our circumstance. This kind of joy is so deep that it presses through any situation that we find ourselves in. And it's also a kind of joy that doesn't, isn't held captive by our feelings or our emotions. It somehow transcends all of that. And so anyone can experience this other kind of joy if everything is going well, if the bank account is full, if the sun is shining, if relationships are perfect. But that's not the kind of joy Jesus wants us to have. Now the opposite of this Christian joy is, is, is something that um, one of my favorite authors calls spiritual depression. Uh, this is a great book. Maybe, maybe you find yourself in a place where um, you just can't seem to get, to get out of the basement. Uh, I started reading this book myself and it's, it's, quite, it's quite good. Um, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones and um, he calls this opposite of Christian joy, calls it spiritual depression. And, and here's what he says, and it's important to understand this, that when we read the Bible, we see time and time again people with this condition. You just read through the Psalms and you will see more often than not, people are going through some type of spiritual depression and they're, and they're exposing that fullness, that rawness through the Psalms. And so it's so important to say that having Christian joy or experiencing spiritual depression is not some sort of a comment on your salvation. To be a Christian doesn't mean to have Christian joy. To not have joy does not mean that you're not a Christian. It's just to say that what Jesus wants for you, for all those who follow him, is to experience the fullness of what that means, which should result in joy. So let me read you um, what he says about spiritual depression. He says this. Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give the appearance of unhappiness and the lack of freedom and the absence of joy. There is no question at all that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. And let us be quite frank and admit it. There is a sense in which there is some justification for their attitude. And we have to confess that their criticism is a fair one. And I would agree with him. That in my own life, far too often, I do not reflect the freedom that comes in knowing Christ, and I have in my own life an absence of joy. So that's part of the reason why I picked up this book and I started reading it. How do I get back to that place? And he talks about a few general conditions that tend to lead towards spiritual depression. Uh, the first thing he says is that some people are just more prone to a lack of joy, to spiritual depression than others because of their temperament. That's so important to realize. Not every Christian is exactly the same. We all have our own temperament. 
And some of us lean towards the melancholy, and there's nothing wrong with that. We just have to know who we are. We have to know ourselves. He also says another thing is physical condition. He talks about one of the great um, preachers in the history of the church, Charles Spurgeon, who had gout. And he often struggled to find this joy because his physical condition was nagging and painful and oftentimes made life miserable. Then he goes on to say, and we have to be honest, that the devil is real, that he is seeking most of all to steal our joy. And then finally he says, and all spiritual depression can ultimately be at some level or another, drawn back to unbelief. Unbelief. Now, what do I mean by unbelief? Hopefully this definition of joy's origin will help us see how that fits in. This is how I've defined joy, or you could say the origin of joy. Seeing God... Or sorry, excuse me, I wrote this. Seeing how God has already fulfilled certain longings of my heart, wedded together with a real trust that God will fulfill the remaining desires at some future moment. And so those two things together create this fullness that then exudes joy. Now, We have to believe when we receive a good thing that we have longed for, we have to believe that God has given us that. So you see how unbelief steals that joy? Because we do not see that God is the giver of that gift. Now, you see how belief is so important to trusting that God will fulfill the other longings of our heart as we wait for him? And so at some level or another, whether it's seeing what God has already fulfilled or waiting and trusting that he will fulfill the rest, whether that's in a day, a week, ten years, or in eternity, we need belief. So we cry out, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because we always have those parts of us, those Pieces of us that still refuse to believe in God's goodness. And so if we lack joy, I would say that there are three three reasons. These are my three reasons. One, either we're longing for the wrong things. We're longing for the wrong things. Or two, we're failing to see longings fulfilled. Or three, we're struggling with impatience. Now I want to break down for you uh, each of these uh, one at a time. I'm going to start with the second point, which is failing to see longings fulfilled. And there's two ways this happens. In full or by comparison. So, so that's how I'm going to look at it. We fail to see our longings already fulfilled in full 
or in comparison. So when we fail to see that our longings have been fulfilled by God in full, a huge uh, thief of this joy is, is what I'll call uh, exaggeration reflux. You know what that is? It's a lot like acid reflux, which means that it just sort of... Has anybody had acid reflux? I've, I've struggled with this. <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere. You think everything's going all right, and you're eating food, very normal parts of life, and then all of a sudden, the body overcompensates, and it shoots too much acid, and it comes up. It's terrible. Now, exaggeration reflux is just as bad. In fact, it's worse, and I think it affects everyone. And there's no pill you can take for it. Hopefully, you can... Listen to this sermon, and it's helpful. But we live in an over-exaggerated world, right? Everything in our world is exaggerated. Uh, we live in advertising. Everything is, is exaggerated. You talk to somebody about their favorite restaurant, and they talk about how great this restaurant is. And you go, and it's okay. <laughs> it's not that great. I mean, it's not bad. But they're exaggerators because we live in an exaggerated world. Now, when we have this exaggeration reflux, two things happen. One, it diminishes our perception of reality because we've gotten so used to speaking in exaggerated terms. The second thing that happens is it dulls our sense of the spectacular, right? Because we have so exaggerated everything that when we experience truly something special and spectacular, it only ever meets our exaggerated sense of reality. So we miss it. We, we, we fail to see how great it is. Um, here's an example. I hesitate every time I go see a great movie and then tell someone about it. Why? Because every time somebody tells me how great a movie is and I go see it, it fails to meet the expectation. Usually because they've exaggerated it. So... I tell people, please don't tell me that you liked it or didn't like it. Just tell me if I should go see it or not. But do it with just a straight face. Just don't, don't smile, nothing, no excitement. Because I want to experience the movie because it might be spectacular. But if I go in, if you've told me this is the best movie that you'll ever see, I've never seen a greater movie in my life, I'm going to go in, I'm going to be expecting something out of it that no movie could possibly deliver. Have you had that experience? Also recently ate at a very nice steakhouse. Very nice steakhouse. I go out to a nice dinner with my family every year. We usually pick some place unnecessary, and we go eat some very nice food. And I did that this week, in fact. And um, you look at the menu, and you see the numbers next to it, and you're wondering, uh, you know, is this in pesos or American dollars? This is not cheap, and I'm looking at this, and I'm, there's no way that this steak I'm about to order can live up to this price tag. And all that's going on around it, the very friendly, at times, staff, uh, the nice ambiance, there's just no way. And they bring out this steak. Here's the deal. It's still just a piece of cow, and they bring out the steak. Sorry if you're a vegetarian, if this is, you know, earmuffs. Um, and, you know, I get mine medium. You know, I don't want them to overcook it. And every time, I go out every year. This is like the one time a year I usually get a nice steak. 
And every time I'm a bit disappointed because nothing can live up to the hype of that price tag. But I bet if I just had that, you know, at a Denny's or something, I'd be like, it's the best stick I've ever had. I can't believe it. Where do you guys get your meat? Japan. Okay. This is the problem with acid reflex. So, acid reflex, or sorry, <laughs> exaggeration reflex and acid reflex will both steal your joy. And so I want to show you how it steals the joy of one thing that God really want, gives us as a gift for our joy, and that thing is marriage. So I'm going to talk about uh, marriage and how exaggeration reflux is destroying marriages. In 2011, a group of authors combined and analyzed 18 clinical studies on the relationship between marriage and happiness. And after analyzing all of them, they came to the clear, clear conclusion that marriage doesn't make you happier. So here's, the, here's what I want to say. Don't get married. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't. So I should have, the timing there was off. <laughs> I was a joke. You should still get married. But the problem is that for most people, marriage doesn't make them happier. They don't experience the joy that I believe God wants for us to experience out of marriage. And so why is that? Why do so many people not experience joy in marriage? I think it's because of exaggeration. And it happens to inflict both men and women. And I'm gonna talk about one aspect of marriage that tends to then be one of the prime reasons why people say that they do not experience happiness in marriage, and that is sex and romance. Now, 41% of marriages, they say in a study, experience some form of infidelity, whether that's physical or emotional. No big surprise probably here in those statistics. And no big surprise that sex and romance are an important part of marriage. Now here's how exaggeration will affect sex and romance. And they don't affect usually men and women in the same way. Sex I'm going to use as the physical connection that tends to be more important to men. Men tend to be more visual, they tend to be uh, more physical, though this is not all the time in every situation. Uh, and women tend to want romance, which is emotional con connection, relational con connection. This is generally speaking. So, since when men tend to be more visual, what do you think is one of the things that tends to steal the joy out of a marriage from the man's point of view? Looking at things that they shouldn't look at. Pornography. It's a huge issue. Now, ultimately, what is pornography? Pornography is an exaggeration of sex. It's an exaggeration of a very, very good gift from God 
put into a context, simulate visually, typically men are 545% more likely to struggle with pornography than women. So it's typically an exaggeration focused to steal the joy of men. Now I'm going to use some 2008 stats, and I know these stats have changed, but I want to use it because I want to show you something in comparison. So in 2008, in the U.S., 100 million men um, viewed pornography. And they've had then their reality of what beauty is, their reality of what sexual relation is, they've had that redefined because of their viewing of this exaggeration. And it steals the joy out of a marriage. And it steals the joy of sex with your wife. Because when the very good thing that happens between you and your wife doesn't match up to the exaggeration that you've exposed yourself to, and it falls short, you're left unsatisfied. You miss out on joy. Now here's the thing. This is not only a men problem. Because, on the other hand, we are also constantly exposing ourselves to the exaggeration of romance. In 2008, so same year, 75 million women in the U.S. purchased a romance novel. You know what I'm talking about, romance novel? Think of the flowy golden hair of a man riding a stallion. <laughs> okay, romance novel. 75 million people spent their money to buy a romance novel. That was surprising to me. Romance novels in 2008 actually um, was a more lucrative business than the pornography industry, which was also surprising to me. Now, why are so many people, uh, women in particular, purchasing romance novels? It's because they are wanting to experience this exaggerated sense of romance, of emotional connection. And so if many, many people, and, and again, this, these are not the only places uh, exaggeration happens. I mean, you just watch pretty much any movie nowadays. Each form of this is probably exaggerated. Think of any romantic comedy you watch, you're going to get the exaggerated visual idea of sex, and you're going to get the exaggerated romance. And here's what happens if you have a redefined definition of romance. When your husband does something romantic for you, if it doesn't match up to that exaggeration that you've built up in your head or you've read about, you will not experience joy because you fail to see it for what it is. Your husband's attempt to love you. And it robs your joy. See how exaggeration in a very real context steals our joy? And it can happen to men, and it can happen to women. It happens to all of us. 
And so we must regain a sense of reality and stop exposing ourselves to the exaggerations that are all around us so that we can look at our wife and we can look at our husband and we can see, thank you, God, for giving me this man. Thank you for giving me this woman. Wow, she's beautiful. She's amazing. Wow, he is so loving and sacrificial. Now, this doesn't mean we don't work at this and, and men in particular doesn't mean you get... I just got to say this. That doesn't mean, men, that, you know, you don't have to try anymore because you could just bring up this romance novel situation, okay? We still try. We still work at loving our spouse to the best of our ability, but we'll never experience the joy God has if we don't stop living in this exaggerated world. Now, That is the failure to see longings fulfilled in full, right? Because we've exaggerated what in full means. But we can also, and this is very related, fail to see longings fulfilled in comparison. And how it's related is because we're comparing ourselves to other people. And typically what we do when we look at other people is we tend to exaggerate their life. Man, if we just had what they have, then we would be really happy. Man, if he just loved me like he loves her, then I would feel really loved. Or Man, if she just dressed like she did, man, then I'd be really happy. It's a lie. You wouldn't be. Don't compare. One of the Ten Commandments, guess what it is? Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Covet meaning do not long for, do not desire, which leads ultimately to envy. And why is this one of the big ten? Because when we allow ourselves to fall into this act of comparison, looking at what we have compared to other people, or even compared to our idea of what they have, then it always leads us into further sins. So if I covet my neighbor's automobile, if I allow myself to continue to go down this path, eventually what's going to happen? I'm just going to steal it. (laughs) And thou shalt not steal. You see how this is related? Coveting, comparing ourselves, exaggerating the goodness that will come from having the same things that other people have, always leads to further and further sin. If I covet my neighbor's wife, what does that lead to? Adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And if I just covet my neighbor and want his life completely, what would that eventually lead to if I don't deal with it at all? Murder. Take him out, then I can take his life. See how they are all connected to this one idea of comparison and it's a thief of joy and so the reason God tells us do not do this it's not because he's a bad God it's not because he's a terrible judge and rule maker it's because he loves us and he realizes what this will do to us so when we fail to see that God is fulfilling the longings of our heart 
because we've over-exaggerated them or we've compared how he's fulfilled them in our life to how he's fulfilled them in other people's, we are not going to reach this definition of joy because we are not going to see that God is for us, that he is giving us good things if we're always wanting something else. But there's another important element to finding joy, which is this. Not just are we having our longings fulfilled, but are we actually longing for the right things? Are we setting our eyes and our hearts on the right end? And actually, uh, another one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, he talks a lot about this idea of joy being longing correctly, okay? So he, again and again, speaks of this in his writings, that the reason that we lack joy is because we're longing incorrectly. We're longing for the right things. We're, we're not seeing the fullest possible longing of our heart, and so we're always, even if we get the thing we long for, we're always lacking the joy that God wants for us. So let me read you what he says here. This is in his book um, called The Pilgrim's Regress, uh, which is sort of a prequel, if you will, to Pilgrim's Progress, an ancient, uh, well, somewhat ancient writing by a great man of God. Okay, so this is a note from the editor because it'll help you understand this text. Uh, The editor of this book says this. The island that we'll hear about in C.S. Lewis's uh, work here, uh, the island is the symbol of desire, okay? The island is the symbol of desire, and desire itself, properly understood, is a longing for God, which is common to all and pursued by some. So when, when you hear him talk about the island, he's talking about this perfect longing, that everyone has deep down inside, but only some actually pursue that perfect longing. So here's what C.S. Lewis says. Listen carefully. Uh, Then came the sound of a musical instrument. From behind it, it seemed very sweet and very short, as if it were one plucking of a string or one note of a bell. And after, a clear voice. And it sounded so high and strange that he thought it was very far away, further than a star. The voice said, come. Then John saw a green wood full of primroses. And he remembered suddenly how he had gone into another wood full of primroses as a child. Very long ago. So long that even in the moment of remembering the memory, it still seemed out of reach. While he strained to grasp it, there came to him from beyond the wood a sweetness and a pang so piercing that instantly he forgot his father's house, his mother, and the fear of the landlord and the burden of the rules. All of the furniture of his mind was taken away. Decluttering of the mind. A moment later, he found that he was sobbing and the sun had gone in. And what it was that had happened to him, he could not quite remember, nor whether it had happened in this wood or in another wood when he was a child. 
It seemed to him that a mist which hung at the far end of the wood had parted for a moment, and through the rift he had seen a calm sea, and in the sea an island. Presently he went home with a sad excitement upon him, repeating to himself a thousand times, I know what I want, I know what I want, I know now what I want. The first time that he said it, he was aware of it, but he wasn't sure if it was entirely true. But before he went to bed, he was believing it. Later in this same work, C.S. Lewis says this, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were actually desiring. Here's this picture that he paints for us of seeing rightly for the first time what our heart's fullest desire is and then reminding ourselves of that again and again and seeking that. Because if we seek less than that, even when we find it, what we realize is that that's not the thing we were truly desiring. And I love this idea because I think it's true. And I see it in my own life that many, many times I've desired something less. And they're not bad things in and of themselves, but I miss out. So even when I get them, I realize I'm still lacking the joy that I want because I've longed for something less than the ultimate, for the island that God has put deep in my heart that's been there, that all have but only some seek after And so if we don't expose our true longings, if we don't wrestle with them, are are we longing for the right things, the fullest things, then of course we are going to probably long in at least partly a wrong sense and therefore miss out on this joy that Jesus tells us he wants in full. And when, uh, when we think about, well, what is that thing that we long for or should long for in full, I think we can sum it up uh, by the two main elements of the gospel of Jesus. And one element of the gospel we have now. So think, remember my definition that to, to find joy we have to see what's already been fulfilled and we have to trust that that which has yet to be fulfilled God will give us. And we see it in the gospel, in the cross, and in the resurrection. And so the question I pose to you is this. Do you long for forgiveness? Do you long for forgiveness? Now, if you don't think sin is a real issue or or that big of an issue, then you probably don't long for it. And so then when you hear the gospel and you realize that your sin has been taken care of, you'll fail to recognize this amazing gift and you'll miss out on the joy that results. So understanding that we have salvation from sin, that is a true joy that we experience now. So maybe you've struggled with why, why organized religion? Why do we... 
do these things that, that we're supposed to do. If you don't understand salvation, if you don't understand sin, if you don't understand forgiveness, and, and what you long for when you pursue your Christianity or any other religion, if, if what you long for is accomplishment or recognition of your accomplishment, then you will always, even when you accomplish that thing, you will not feel the joy because you've longed wrongly. Does that make sense? Now, that's joy that we have access to right now. We can experience the forgiveness of sin, salvation, right now. But the other part of the gospel is resurrection. He's died for our sins on the cross, and then he's risen from the dead. Now, do you long for rebirth? If you long for rebirth, then the truth of the resurrection that Jesus proves that we can be born again. That we can be born again now in spirit and one day experience a resurrection like his. Then we have joy if we trust in that promise. Now that promise hasn't come to us yet in full. But it's a promise that Jesus has guaranteed by his own resurrection. But here, here's, a, here's a common reason why when we hear this part of the gospel, we don't experience joy. One, we either do not believe in the resurrection, or we love this life so much, we love our current life so much, and we think all that we need is some minor adjustments. And if we just add here, add there, then life would be perfect. And so when we hear this gospel of resurrection and rebirth, it does not bring us joy because we don't really want to leave this life for a new life. And so we don't experience this joy, this joy of the gospel. Now, we need to long, therefore, in the right way for the right things. And we need to start seeing the ways those things are being fulfilled even now and the gifts God has given us now. And then we need this third element, which is patience. And of course, Jesus himself models patience perfectly. So we look to him and we say, give me the patience that you had and that you continue to have as you wait to bring into fulfillment all that you've promised. He's waiting so that many would turn to him and be saved. But if we lack that same kind of patience, we will either believe that God doesn't really give the desires of our hearts. And that turns into cynicism. And so we'd start desiring really, really small. Like I can't expect much out of life because life doesn't have that much to give. That's, that's cynicism. And so if we lack patience, we will always slip into that and start to desire too small. God wants full things. 
Not exaggerated things, but full things. And the other thing that happens if we lack patience is we will ultimately turn to sin. And sin is taking that which is good on your own time, in your own way, by your own means, and not waiting for God to give you those things. So we need all of these elements. We need to long for the right things, see the the longings that are already being fulfilled, and being patient and trusting and believing that God will bring those other longings of our heart in full. These are the ways to rediscover joy as Jesus intends it to be. These are the ways that he wants us to learn the truth of his gospel. And there's one other recommendation that I'll give to you as you seek to find this joy. Because ultimately, I, like Jesus, want you to have full joy. I want you to experience full joy. If you want to turn with me, turn to Psalm 42. And I'm going to show you what I think is a great illustration of working through this spiritual depression that many of us struggle with. I think many of us, even during this time of year, struggle with. How do we work through that? Remembering all these things that, that we've talked about that lead to a lack of joy and work now towards a fuller picture of this joy. So Psalm 42, right in the heart of your Bible there, right in the middle, I'm gonna read to you a couple verses out of Psalm 42. First verse I want you to look at is verse, is, uh, verse five, which says this. This is the psalmist crying out. This is like a prayer that he's crying out to God. Why are you cast down Oh, my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Okay, now jump down to verse 11. He says a very similar thing. Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Okay, well, that's not very uplifting. (laughs) What's he doing here? Who is he talking to? When he cries these things out. He's talking to himself. And I find that very interesting. He's talking to himself. He's saying to his own soul. Why are you in that place? Why are you without joy? And so again it's okay to be here. This is a psalmist writing this. This is a man of God writing this. But what is he doing? He's talking to himself. We really have two options in life. We can let ourself talk to us, or we can talk to ourself. And so often in life, we let ourself talk to us, which means we wake up in the morning, the first thought in our head Lots of times it's, man, how hard yesterday was, or man, how hard today is going to be. Um, And and, and we lay there in bed and we just let ourselves talk to us and talk us down instead of doing what? Talking ourselves up. Now look at the second half of those verses. Verse 5, after he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? He says, hope in God. For I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Now jump down to verse 11. 
Right after he said, why are you downcast, O my soul? He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise his name, my salvation and my God. So here's what it looks like to not let yourself talk to you or the demons in your life talk to you, but to talk back at the self and tell it what is true. We look to the truths of God, the promises that he's made, the promises that he's filled. We look to the cross and the resurrection, and we talk to ourselves, and we give ourselves a pep talk, and we say, you are loved, you are worthy, you are the hope of God, and he will fulfill his promises. You cannot just expect it to change. You must talk to yourself and tell yourself what is true. I guarantee you, if you learn to do this well, talk to yourself, read scripture, preach to yourself, preach the truth of this book to yourself, preach the gospel to yourself, you will begin to see yourself come out of that place that you might find yourself. You will see wherever you're at, your joy begin to swell up in you as you tell yourself what is actually true and not let the world, the enemy, and yourself even tell you everything that's wrong, but you begin to speak these truths from Scripture. You begin to see how God is fulfilling and speak those truths. God, thank you for this wife you've gave me. Thank you for this kid you've gave me. Thank you for this church that you've given me. Thank you for these friends that you've given me. Thank you for this roof over my house that you've given me. Thank you for my daily bread. And you begin to remind yourself of all the fulfilled longings of your heart. And then remind yourself of the future promises that Jesus Christ has made and guaranteed and proved through the resurrection. And then you ask God for patience, perspective, and a realigning of your longings. And if you do all that, what you'll find is that true joy, full joy, is now reachable. And that's what I want for you. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what we want to model to the world this time of year and all year long is that true contentment, that countenance. People can see it on our face that we are truly in a very deep way satisfied with our God, our Savior Jesus Christ, and we trust in him fully in every way. Would you pray with me? Father, we... We just come and we confess that joy can often seem so hard to come by, that we don't always have this kind of joy that you're talking about here, that we don't long in the right ways and we don't see the ways that you fulfill our longing. And Lord, we're a very impatient people. And we just pray and confess that to you right now and we give that over to you and we, we ask you to continue to transform our hearts uh, to make them more like Jesus, full of patience, pu- full of right desire, um, that we might start stop comparing ourselves to others and exaggerating uh, what is right and good and true. And, and all of this, Lord, we pray, help our unbelief. Fill us with a joy. Fill us with trust in the promises of Jesus. All that we might go and be uh, vehicles of your grace uh, in our family, in our friend groups. Uh, right now, this time of year, uh, when we see so many of those people, that they might notice something different in us. 
a type of satisfaction that, that is very rare, uh, only by the grace and goodness of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.